the majority, the Republicans uh, press. They're laughing at us, at our stupidity. Welcome to a new episode of The Light, as always. Yo, Notch. Yo, what the fuck is this bullshit on the radio, son? Chill, chill. That's the shit, God. Chill. Big John, I need you front and center. You know, I'm always lurking in the background. How you been, man? Chilling, man, chilling. You know, just like I said on other episodes, man, I'm not really a political guy. And now, it's not that I'm not interested. I'm very interested. It's just I'm very objective, you know, in my thought process. You know, I take, you know, liberal stances on some issues. I take conservative stances on some issues, if that makes any sense at all. That makes 100% sense because I'm pretty much the same way, other than the fact that I'm very political. Yeah. I'm always going in about this thing, about that thing. But what I try to get across, and I hope what I get across, is that there is a middle ground. Mm -hmm. You know, not, not that you can please everyone, but when Spock said the needs of the many outweighs the needs of the few before he died in one of the movies that he died in, I'm talking about Leonard Nimoy, that resonated with me because that's what I think elected officials should be concerned with because you are supposed to be more socially conscious than everybody else. If I were to claim a political stance, I would probably be a centrist because I do believe there are good Republican ideas. I do believe there are good Democratic ideas, but I also firmly believe that neither party has a monopoly on bad ideas. You feel me? I do. I do. And if I could be, you know, judgmental for a second, man, I would say that, you know, that's just what intelligent people do. Right. You know, nothing should be premeditated. Nothing should be scripted or canned. Right. And I think everybody should be, you know, should use critical thought before responding to anything. And we, we go back and forth on this all the time. What, what boggles my mind, John, like as a critically thinking human being, right, as an objectively thinking human being and i consider myself to be at least halfway intelligent right right if the house is burning and i'm only <laughs> and i'm only outside of that house right and i forgot that i left one of my lights on in the bathroom i'm not going to run in the house to turn the light off i'm I not got gonna, you. i'm not going to run inside of a burning house yo why because you. i'm going to get my ass burnt so take that same thought process you know, again, as an objectively, critically thinking human being, I can't think of a better example of a burning house than that Republican National Convention. I don't, I just don't get it, man. I, I mean, the house is burning. You can see, you can smell it, and it smells like shit, right? <laughs> why the hell would you run into a house that's burning down and smells like I just don't understand it, man. So why would you want to get behind something like that? You know, again, I am not political. I don't have allegiance to anyone or anybody other than my family and, you know, the people that I love and care about. But the things that these people are saying on the stage, how could any thinking, rational human being ingest that information and say, you know what, I'm going to stand behind what that person's saying? I don't get it, man. If, well, if it boggles your mind, understand what it does to mine. Because I'm one of those people where... I enjoy being able to find what's good for everybody. Okay. And not that something is good for everyone. Mm -hmm. Don't don't miss don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is 
I enjoy being able to find that that middle ground. One of my favorite favorite movies is a movie called Layer Cake. Yes. And at the end of the movie, you know what I mean. The the uh, big shot, you know, is telling the upper the up and comer, the art of good business is being a great middleman. And 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 that's who I envision myself to be. And I just I really am at a loss for words to explain what people are thinking with in the Republican Party. Now, trust me, I get it, loyalty, but at some point we're all Americans. Mm-hmm. So at some point you have to put America in a in the good of America over your political party if you're an elected official. And I mean county, state, federal. At the end of the day, we're all trying to make our country more sustainable on every level, from climate, economically, to, you know, for people to be healthy. So when people sit there and blame the same thing with the Affordable Care Act, if it's being mismanaged in your state, that is your state governor. Everyone wants to turn out for a presidential election, but nobody wants to turn out for their local mayor or for their school board or for their police chief or for the DA or for the judges. It, it, it begins and ends at, at your local government level. You know, everybody likes to point their fingers at what's going on federally, but the local government are the ones that interact directly with you. And just, and just, to, just to put a dovetail on the things that, you know, upset me about what's going on on the right is because... And the reason why it upsets me so much, Scott, in all honesty, is because we need the Republican Party. And people may think, John, what the hell did you just say? And here's the reason why we need the Republican Party. All right? We don't want an oligarchy. All right? We don't want a single entity running the political system. So, so we need the Republican Party to be a responsible and responsive party to their constituents. But unfortunately, because... There's a lot of fear-mongering, and there is a lot of racism, and they're pandering to racists. People vote against their own best interests. It's, it's, it just boggles my mind, you know, hearing some of, these, some of the reasons, you know, why people are going to vote for, you know, Trump in this upcoming election. One of the ones that I see repeatedly over and over and over is, well, you know, I like the fact that Trump doesn't have any history in politics. I like the fact that he's a good businessman and that he's going to run the government like one of his businesses. And that's when I jumped in and I was like, well, that would be all well and good if he was a good businessman. (laughs) Tell me about it. Which he's not. You know, he's not a good businessman. And so that argument does not wash. So what is the reason why these people are voting for him. It has to be something else. And I think we're starting to get to the root of what that is. There are still deep-rooted race issues in the United States. And it's causing, just like you said, people that subscribe to that to vote against their best interests. Why? Because they still subscribe to that way of thinking. That has to be it. That's got to be what it is. Even if you don't outright admit to it, you're 100% right. And here's, and see, and they say it, Republicans say that stuff. And, you know, there's a uh, DVD series out called Hidden Colors. And Republicans and people on the right, you often hear this, and tell me if you haven't heard this before. I want to vote for somebody who believes in the Constitution. Have you heard that before, Scott? Yeah. Guess what they're actually saying? 
In the Constitution, what does it say about a black man? Or all minorities for that matter. That minorities, and they wrote it for black uh, folks, is th that they are equal to one thirty-second yeah. of a human being. Yeah. Okay? So when you hear people talking about, I want to vote for a constitutionalist, that's what they're saying. And it boggles my mind. People will spend 18 hours straight on Facebook pontificating on what a political pundit said on their favorite news channel and won't take one second to fact check it. No. No. And you know what? You, you bring in an excellent point, and I want to talk about three distinct things that I think are going to be a perfect segue into, you know, a very, very special part of this, of this episode of the Politicking episode. Um, the first one being an article that came out last week about uh, ex-KKK leader David Duke. As you all know, he's, you know, he's, he's preparing to make a run for Senate, right? He's, he's applied, you know, to you know, to run for a seat in the House. And one of the things that he said that bothered me greatly was he said that this is the perfect time for him to run for Senate because the climate of the United States was exactly what he was waiting for, to reenter politics, the current climate of the United States. If that is not a warning shot, I don't know what is, man. And why do you think that is? Oh, I think we've, that's exactly what we've been talking about, man. I think that this country right now is at its most divisive. You know, John Stewart from The Daily Show has retired, you know, uh, this year, and his replacement was, uh, is, is Trevor Noah. And if, I'm a huge fan of The Daily Show. I think she's incredibly intelligent. And it's actually one of my inspirations for this segment of, for this, this spinoff that we're doing of, of The Light Podcast. But they bring up some incredibly valid points, you know, about, about the GOP, about the Republican National Convention, and specifically, you know, about Trump and, you know, his irresponsible remarks, some of the things that he's making, some of the, some of the, some of the claims that he's making about not only, you know, the Democratic National Party, but about Hillary Clinton. Now, like I said before, I'm non-political, man. I don't have any affiliations with anyone, man, but they bring up some incredibly, you know, valid points. I mean, one of the things that Trump did or said was that he called on Russia during one of his press conferences and said, you know, he asked Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's email server. I mean, what is he thinking with that, man? I mean, I'm not saying, you know, whether he was joking or not, he's got to understand the platform that he's on and the position that he holds. He seems to be extremely irresponsible, right? And that leads me to the next thing that I want to bring up. And that's, you sent me uh, an article a little while ago and um, in a nutshell, and I'm going to read it verbatim, you know, but they're facts. They're outlining actual facts attributed to Donald Trump. And this leads back to the first thing that I said in the intro to this about critical thinking, about objective thinking, because what you sent me, the information has been verified. And Trump's, you know, campaign spokesman, I think might be a bigger idiot than Trump because he's been asked about it on numerous occasions from both CNN and Fox News. And he looks like I used to look when my mom would catch me drinking or catch me coming home late, <laughs> right? His response is, I, 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 you know what I mean? That's what he looked like to me, man. So I'm just going to read it verbatim, and then we'll, we'll chop it up over it, man. So it starts off saying Donald Trump has never been elected or appointed to any public office at the local, state, or federal level. 
fact-checked. Number two, he has never been in the military. He has no record of public service to review. Fact-checked. Number three, <clears throat> he's running for president based entirely on his reputation as a successful businessman. Now, we've talked about that at length. He is not a successful businessman. Now, this is not a Trump bashing episode. We are simply providing factual information. He is not a successful businessman. You posted something, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago about um, Trump's ability or Trump's score with Dun & Bradstreet, how he's got like the yeah. like the worst score of, of like... It's a zero. Yeah. It's a zero. It's yeah. a zero. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, again, I'm looking at it from a, not, from a purely objective lens. Yet he refuses to show us the one piece of evidence that we need to evaluate his business success. The almighty tax return. So with no record of public service, no. Hey, let me stop you. Let me let me stop you on the tax return point, because here's the thing. You know, I like to brag, Scott. You know, I'm a big time Steeler fan. I love to brag on the Steelers. Right. Uh, if you're doing well, <laughs> you're going to want to brag. But if you're not doing so well, you're going to want to kind of hide in the corner. Am I right or am I wrong? You're absolutely right. And that comes and I, I, I get where you're going with this, John, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, man, but this is where, like, intelligence comes into play, right? If you're running for president, there is no position on earth that is more highly scrutinized, right? The, the, the scrutiny does not end when you get elected. If anything, it, 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 the heat increases. Doesn't this idiot understand that at some point the jig is going to be up? Just to continue on reading this, this statement that, that, that you sent me. With no record of public service, no tax returns, virtually nothing to show his fitness or ability to perform in office, Trump wants our vote for president. And then the last one is a, is a, is a perfect snub. Perhaps he's hoping to win the election based entirely on his charming personality. And if, if you've ever watched even one second or two seconds of any of his press conferences or in, in or in even just an interview with the guy, you know he has no personality, not, not even a smidgen. And the last point I want to make, I don't want to drag this out, man. I mean, I think, I think our point has been made viciously, right? <laughs> but you, you've heard his stance on immigration. The infamous remarks about the wall in Mexico and uh, banning Muslims from entering the country, just, just nonsense, just incredibly irresponsible nonsense. But the thing that seemed to kind of, I don't know, maybe it didn't, maybe I'm just uninformed. But the thing that kind of, to me anyway, seemed to fly over people's heads was doesn't he have two wives that are Russian? Exactly. So all that to say, what the hell are these people thinking? But the last thing I want to say, man, to our podcast listeners, man, to our audience is vote. Please get out there and vote. Please, because it's that important. And, and, and just to, before you introduce our uh, guest, so I don't want people to think we're not, you know, fair and balanced. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton, she does have some scars on her. I will not doubt it whatsoever. Uh, but the scars that she has on her pale in comparison when you look at the scars that the political terrorist, a.k.a. punk Trump, has on him. And I know people hate in an election cycle when 
you know, folks say pick the lesser of two evils. But unfortunately, that's where we find ourselves right now. And I honestly, you know, the scars that Hillary Clinton has on her, you know, the 33,000 emails that went missing. Well, I didn't hear any Republicans screaming up and down about the 22 million emails that went missing from uh, the second Bush's campaign or from the second Bush you know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't, you know, and they talk about Benghazi. I didn't hear any of the, you know, pundits on the right talking about all the different deaths, over 344 deaths at embassies throughout the world that happened under Bush 2.0's watch. You know what I mean? We live in a dangerous world. You know, uh, did Hillary Clinton make a calculation and that calculation was wrong? Possibly. But I believe in our system. I, I do believe in our political process. And the FBI investigated her, and they said there was nothing there on both Benghazi and both her email situation. And those are the biggest two things that people talk negatively about her. You know what I mean? And there are some things in her past with respect to mass incarceration, with respect to, you know what I mean, a couple other things as well. But I'll say this about Hillary Clinton. I respect the fact that even though she was on the side of mass incarceration, even though she was on the side of kicking people off welfare, she came out and apologized for it. She came out and said, my thoughts then are not my thoughts now. The information I had wasn't the information, wasn't the best, and it wasn't empiric and empirical data, and I've made a bad decision. I can respect the person that admits when they're wrong. And I can not necessarily look past their wrong or forgive them for their wrong, mm -hmm. but I can respect them for at least standing up and having the intestinal fortitude to say, I was wrong, judge me for that wrong, but understand at least I'm owning the fact that I was wrong. Absolutely. So, and, you know, to begin to segue into who our guest is and, and what we're, we're going to be asking her, this all started a few weeks ago, you know, during the unfortunate events that took place in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, Gavin Long, you know, he was a sergeant in uh, the U.S. military. He was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. Um, a sufferer, a long sufferer of PTSD, served in Iraq. Um, you know, took out three law enforcement officers in Baton Rouge. You know, like you've talked about in previous podcasts, man, we are not advocates of violence, nor do we think that violence is an answer uh, to what's going on, to the, to the racial climate that is bubbling and brewing right now in the United States. It is not the answer, right? But, you know, John, you being a veteran of the Marines, you have a very um, relevant and important position on how veterans of the U.S. military are treated and what uh, services they are offered here in the United States once they are discharged uh, from the U.S. military. So we kicked around, you know, various things, you know, that that were important to us with regard to the politicking yet. To, to the politicking yet, we thought that it would be very appropriate, you know, to have you know someone on the ground at the Democratic National Convention to kind of give us some insight as to you know what the strategy could be, not just from purely the veterans' perspective, but overall with respect to the divisiveness that's seen in the country, with respect to the direction that the country's taking. And maybe help us, you know, understand what solutions, you know, are, are, are possible, right? So we reached out to Illinois State Senator of the 40th District, Senator Toy Hutchinson, and, um, you know, she agreed to come on the show. 
and be interviewed and you know field our questions as we strive to find some semblance of answers of you know make some make some sense as to what's going on so senator toy hutchinson agreed to come on the show we thank her so much for doing that you know we understand that her time is very valuable and you know very limited but she agreed to come on field our questions uh we had many we had many but uh you know podcast listeners please understand we did this for you i really wish we can get a republican on the show as well because again i do want to present both sides from rational individuals her positions as a state senator in one of one of our most troubled states is one of the reasons that attracted me to reach out to her you know and just let me help people understand what the 40th district in Chicago, Illinois is like. Toy Hutchison is a Democrat. The 40th district is largely Republican. When I say largely, I mean greater than 50% Republican. And this woman, this African-American woman, was able to win a seat in that district because she's genuine. She truly walks the walk of somebody who wants to give her life for public service. And I look forward to the day that she is on the national stage. And I know the people of the 40th district in Chicago, Illinois will hate me for saying that because they love her to pieces. Not only is she the first woman senator of the 40th district, she's the first African-American woman of the 40th district. Not only those two facts, she's the first Democrat of the 40th district. She chairs a number of committees. She fights for things that are very personal to me, like Scott already said, which is VA rights. Just real quick, one of the biggest, biggest things that affects veterans is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and the onsets for PTSD. That's why there are so many homeless veterans, because veterans have a hard time asking for help. You know, and just understand that when you look at somebody like a Senator Toy Hutchison, you're looking at somebody who is 100% unequivocally down for the fight. You know what I mean? She is a huge, huge proponent of social issues because, again, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. One of her favorite slogans is do the most good. Hashtag do the most good. You know what I mean? She she is running on, I think, her second or third term, and she's bound to get reelected again. She's not a big money candidate, and I really, really hope one day we see her on a national stage, Scott. No doubt. No doubt, man. So here we go. Illinois State Senator Toy Hutchinson, straight from the Democratic National Convention, right here on the Light Podcast. Pay attention, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here. So, so Senator Hutchinson, just uh, you know, right now you're on the you're uh, in Philadelphia for the DNC, and you know, just help our podcast listeners understand what that process is like and why you were there. Uh, the, this is the process of nominating, you know, our party's nomination. And so the process really is, you know, from all different, all 50 states, each state runs their own organiz, or, organized um, primary system, and that's how the nomination goes into contention. So this is day three, day three of the conference, and I'm here because it's a historic event. And 
the one thing I didn't want to do as an elected woman, an elected African-American woman in a general assembly of a big Midwestern state was I just couldn't miss this. Now, just to uh, help our podcast listeners understand more about you, give us a little bit about your background, how you got into politics when you first came into office and the passion that drove you. Um, let's see, where to start? I think I was one of those kids in my family, uh, I was sort of like the Democratic Alex P. Keaton, like, I was just always really interested, even though nobody else in my family was. <laughs> so my mom constantly talks about how she didn't know where I came from. <laughs> and so and I remember when I graduated from high school, I was really into theater, really into drama, but also news, uh, the newspaper and the yearbook, and I was a speech team kid. And so I was voted, I tied actually, two things, most likely to run for president and most dramatic. And I don't know which one people really thought was funnier. <laughs> but and, and to see where I ended up, you know, I thought I was going to be a theater major. I ended up giving speeches for my, my, uh, my, my career. So flash forward, I got married. I have three kids. Today they're 16, 18, and 20. And um, when I started, they were 7, 9, and 11. And it was a circuitous wow. route. It wasn't uh, the way, you know, what we say in political circles, when men decide to run for office, they decide to run for office because they're the best at whatever it is they're going to do. And they tell everybody they're the best. And I'm the next because I'm the best. And you're going to vote for me because that's how we do it. <laughs> Women tend to be asked or recruited to run. And that's what happened to me. I was the chief of staff of the woman I replaced. She, in 2008, won a congressional race, uh, so the seat was open, and I had just gotten accepted to law school. I was in my mid-30s. I had three children. I had always wanted to be a lawyer. I'm attracted to the law, the same reason I'm attracted to the legislature. I always wanted to be a lawyer, and so I applied to one school and asked God if this is what I was supposed to be doing, and the next thing I know, I got in. And so when the phone started ringing, that this seat was open, folks asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to finish law school. I just got here. And they said, you really should think about this. You really, really should think about this. And what ended up happening was that eight people put in their uh, letters of interest. They said, put in a letter of interest in your resume if you're interested in running for this seat. And again, I was like, how am I going to pay for this? Who's going to watch my kids? How am I going to raise the money to do something like this? How, how would I be in a position to do something that to me seemed really big at the time? And then I saw who else put their name in contention. And I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted in my own senator because that person was going to represent me. And the more I thought about it, my question about whether or not I could do it became, why shouldn't I do it? And then it became, I have to do it. And after those eight people put their name in, they went down to four, and then it went down to three, and then it went down to me. And I was the only woman and the only African-American, and nobody thought it would be me. I didn't have two nickels to rub together. But I knew right. that district, and I knew what I wanted to say to people that um, sometimes didn't look like me, didn't talk like me, didn't really near, live near me. And so today I represent a district that is about 215,000 people, four counties, 14 townships, and 45 municipalities in an area that's about 68% white. And the southern part was about 53, 54 in an off-year percent Republican. So on paper, it does not look like I'm supposed to be where I am. Right. So I just, I look now and I go, it's eight years later. I'll be eight on January 5th. 
2017, I'll be eight years old in service. And it has been the honor and the, and the joy, but also the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> wow. Senator, you know, listening to you speak about your position, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's extremely inspiring. And uh, it, it brings me to my, my, my first question for you. And it's, you know, in watching Michelle Obama, the First Lady of the United States, watching her speech a few days ago um, as we opened up the DNC, I mean, it was extremely inspiring. What was the feeling in the room as she delivered that monumental speech? And what impact did that leave on you? You know, it's, it's funny because I tear up just thinking about it. Because honestly, the first thing I would say is pride. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I'd say is grace. And, and you know, we I was sitting there, uh, and I posted this too, when, when uh, Senator Kirsten uh, Gillibrand was talking about issues that we work on in the state. I posted on my Facebook page while I was sitting next to two of my sister legislators and um, one in the House and one in the Senate. And, and there was just so much black girl magic happening in that moment. <laughs> you know, the, our, our, party, our party talks about equal pay. Our party talks about uh, quality access to childcare. Our party talks about um, paid sick leave for families so you don't have to choose between taking care of a sick kid or parent and your job and being able to pay rent. Our party talks about all of that. And I work on all of those things and, and, and my res respective thing in the state. Now, Michelle is from Chicago. She's a homegrown girl. And I remember the, the last time I saw her before Barack did the speech in 2004, there are no red, there are no red states there are no blue states, there's just the United States of America, that speech. I saw her coming out of Target. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, hey, girl, hey, like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm just picking up some stuff. I'm just picking up some stuff for the kids, no big deal. She was in shorts and a t-shirt. Like, she is everything you think she is. She is exactly what she presents. When you see her, if you, see, if you run into her, she is that down to earth. She is that real with everybody. She is that woke on a regular basis. Wow. And on that stage, it was all of that, all of those memories, all of the, all the, the fact that I could have at one point in time tapped this woman on the shoulder, said hello, and now she is the first lady of the United States of America telling a story from a perspective that would be just like mine, that I have a daughter, I have sons. And the thought when she said, I wake up every morning in a house built by slaves. Right. And I watch awesome. my two young, beautiful black daughters play with their dogs on the White House lawn. That moment was, I don't, I don't know that I really have words. I, don't know that, I, I really don't know that I have words for that. It was wow. an incredible experience. And I really think sitting here right now, how much we're going to miss them as the first family. I can hear it. I can, I can hear it in your voice. I can hear the emotion. And, um, you know, it's incredibly powerful. I mean, just, you know, speaking, f you know, from John and I's perspective, to hear it from your perspective, someone that's on the inside, you know, someone that's, that's, that's there working, you know, hand in hand, you know, with the president, with the first lady, with, you know, your you know, with your constituents, with your colleagues. It's, it's very inspiring to hear. And, it, and that, you know, kind of leads me to my, my next question, which is more of an observation. And, um, you know, I, I tell John all the time, I mean, we, we discuss all kind of things, you know, about, about all kind of things. And I always say that 
I'm the least political guy that you'll ever meet. And what, <laughs> I don't mean it to say that I'm not interested. You know, I'm just very observational. Like, I don't really necessarily yeah. have a position on anything. I just listen, I watch, I comment, and I do have opinions and things of that nature. But one of the things that I've noticed and one of the things that stuck out to me the most was, you know, I, I watch the RNC. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the DNC. You know, and one of the things that that quite honestly bothers me as an American is that when watching the RNC, it looked like pure insanity. It looked unorganized. It didn't look real. It looked like I was watching something that was completely fabricated. And then when I watched the DNC, it's very comfortable. It's very welcoming. It's very relatable to me. And so I, I guess yeah. I guess my question is, you know, what does that feel like on the inside? To, because you. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> man, I'm sorry. <laughs> when I okay, so I was at the 2012. Let me let me just back it up a little bit. I was at the 2012 election or uh, nominate. I'm sorry, I can't mm. even talk. I haven't had coffee yet, y'all. <laughs> um, 2012 um, convention when we nominated Barack, and I was on the floor next to the microphone when we not right next to the microphone, but close enough to the microphone <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when we nominated uh, the president for his what we knew was going to be his last convention. And I am telling you. It was euphoric. It was like you, the amazing thing because it looked like America. There were white people and black people and right. Hispanic people and mm-hmm. Asian people and old people and young people and children and then people with disabilities and people. I mean, just you name any kind of different kind of person, they were there and people would just grab you and dance in the aisles. And I remember filing out of the convention center every night, talking about how much hope I had for this country because you just were so happy to be there and to be a part of this and to be witnessing you know this that i could be in a in a position to be listening to you know the way our country was going to be shaped for the next you know at least for the next four years but that that impact would be for generations right the fact that i'm here at the follow-up convention so again you asked earlier you know as an african-american woman elected i feel i feel like both of these conventions are like wrapped up in me that I was there for the first African-American president, and I was here for the first, the nomination of the first woman president. Mm -hmm. And I can't draw a line down the middle of myself and tell you whether I'm more black or more woman. This is me together, all of me. This is how I present myself to the world. Wow, that's amazing. And I was in that room Mm -hmm. feeling the same thing, even after we were, I was sitting in front of some really cool Bernie supporters. And, you know, the California delegation was a little difficult. And I couldn't understand how there were no boos for Trump. But every time he said Hillary's name, they were booing Hillary's name. But no boos for this man. I mean, we don't have to go down the litany of things that could happen if this man is actually elected president. And people saying, you know, no, no Hillary, no Trump, no nothing. I'm like, well, then what's your what's your alternative? Right. So on the when the nomination happened, when the moment happened and I turned around because I was seated. We were, the Illinois delegation is on the floor. Uh, towards and I was seated towards the back, so I was actually close to where the Vermont delegation was. And all eyes turned to the Vermont delegation, and we all turned around to record this moment when Bernie Sanders stood up to enter Hillary Clinton's name into nomination and to move by acclamation that all of those voice, all of those votes that had been done would would go to her. Right after it was done. They picked up Hillary signs. I picked up a Hillary sign. We hugged. This one guy looked at me and said, now let's go kick ass <laughs> in November. And I had to stand there for a minute and look at this hall 
and say I'm here again for another historic moment in this moment in time in history that is just so profound to me. So watching all of this and feeling all of this, I, I feel like I've been, this is day three for me and I'm a ball of emotion because there's so much that we need to get done and the stakes are so high and there's no way, you know, they win if we stay divided. They win if we sow chaos. They win if we can't right. figure out how to get together. They win and that's what they want. Right. That is what they want. They don't want an America that looks like that room. They're not comfortable with an America that looks like that room. There are so many people who have no idea what it would be like to even walk through an America that looked like that room. And to me, right. that's great sad that's the greatest sadness in all of this. That our light causes such fear and hatred in them. And I just don't understand it. And so if I had to pick a room to be in, there's no place else on this earth that I would have wanted to be at at that moment in time, in that place, in this moment, in this country, in this year, that I was there. And it is, um, it's just profound to me. That's, in, that's incredibly powerful. And I think you summed up, you know, pretty much, you know, what I'm feeling. I just don't know how to verbalize you know, in, 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 in watching the DNC. And I've got, you know, just one more question for you, if that's okay. And building off of what you just said, I mean, the nation now seems more divided now than ever. So yeah. you, I mean, as, as, as someone who's responsible for drafting policy, someone who's in a, you know, in a real position to affect serious change, I mean, where do we start? You know, I mean, what would be your strategy? I think that's twofold. I think, number one, we have to figure out a way to, to get our young folks who are out here speaking truth to power mm -hmm. um, to make the connection between uh, agitation and electoral activity. So one of the things, like if you read Martin Luther King's um, book, you know, like, like it, when you think about those speeches and you're talking about where do we go from here, it was we need people in office who will be able to um, affect and do and make, and make real what people are protesting for in the streets. So across the country, you know, in our Black Lives Matter movement, when you see, you know, the ability for a state's attorney to, to go up for election, you know, a protest then doesn't mean anything if we don't change that state's attorney. Who, if we don't change the process from the voting side, we just it just it's like all there's no place for all that anger to go, mm -hmm. and the anger has to be translated into action. It just it's got to be a two part thing. Like we can't we have to listen to people who are trying to tell us that if you are not a recipient of the treatment we are trying to explain to you, then you don't get to tell us how to respond to it. You don't get to tell me how to feel about it. You don't get to tell me that I should just get over having to tell my son how to be, how to walk, how to navigate the world when he leaves my house, when he walks off my porch. Because I know a routine traffic stop means he may not come home. So right. we had to take and channel this action that's happening on the ground all up and down on these local races. It's amazing to me how many people will come out and, and will break their necks to vote for the president. But the president ain't the one giving you a ticket if you don't cut your grass every day. That's the public works officer. And the public works officer is picked by the mayor. And if you don't know who your mayor is or who the people on your city council are, if you're upset about your schools, then you need to know who's on the school board. If you think when you walk past a certain... Um, um, intersection every day and you're walking your kids wherever it is you're trying to go and you're like, like why is the traffic so high here? Why don't we put a stop sign right here? You need to know how you can get a stop sign right there because you just saw that. That happens in your local town hall. 
That happens. So you need to know politics is local. It is all everything that happens to you locally. It is it is how we live and work and love and play together where we live right, you know, at our feet, where where our houses are. Literally where our houses are. Politics is local. And that's where it starts. And right now we have this insidious belief that all government is bad. All government is negative. That nobody is out there looking out for anyone's best interest. We paint everybody with a broad brush. I can't tell you how hurtful it is to me personally because I'm not allowed to complain about it. But I know every time I open my mouth, I have to overcome the perception of a politician as being a liar, a crook, or a thief. And we say it interchangeably and we joke about it all the time. And I'm telling you, we can't talk about this system in our United States, our system of government like that, and continue to behave as though it doesn't do anything and it's irreparably broken. And that, and that nothing matters about what it is you do. Everything matters. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to be like any other country. I like this system. I like the fact that we can debate. I like that we can challenge. I like that we can protest. I like that we can you know, do all that. But I also recognize that there's streams and things that we have to do. We have to work together to get better. We have to, because this is a living, breathing nation. And the whole point of progressive politics is to progress. Right. If I still thought the same things I thought when I was 20... You know, someone would be wrong with me. I tell my kids all the time who think they know everything, as I think I am so happy that you are as smart as you are. I am so happy that you are so smart. But I'm going to tell your 19-year-old self that I'm so happy that I know more than I did when I was 19. And one day you're going to get there too. <laughs> no so doubt. At this, point, at this point, we have so much work to do, but you can't take your bat and ball and go home. You cannot complain about a process that you don't want to participate in. And citizenship requires action. That's a verb. It requires action. It requ- you have to get up out your chair to the voting box, take some people with you, do some. It, it requires action. You it, This whole, I call it um, sedentary agitation, when people just sit on their couch is mad. <laughs> <laughs> and they listen to all the stuff that's on the radio and all the, the um, social media stuff and all the stuff that's on the cable news, which is designed to make you mad. It is designed to make you um, disconnect. It is designed to do that. It's designed to sow division and highlight division and celebrate mediocrity. It's designed to do all of that. Don't fall for it. We're better than this. No doubt. And, you know, you, you bring up some very good points, Senator. And I find myself often <laughs> getting into these political debates on Facebook. You know, I'm the Facebook politician. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I find it very difficult trying to have a conversation with somebody who is a staunch Republican. And yeah. I say that because, you know, they just believe some of the wildest, un- incomprehensible, and the most insane things you can possibly imagine with respect to, one, the political process, as well as our current president, President Obama. And my first question to you is, how do you, since you are in the 40th district, which is largely Republican, how did you overcome that wall, that barrier in speaking to your constituents since you are a Democrat and they were so Republican? How did you overcome that? Number one, I just I tried to concentrate on being authentic because one thing I do know is that people can smell BS a mile away, a mile away. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. If 
if you are talking to someone that you don't believe um, is a true, authentic person, like it's just coming to you like real, then you, it, it, it's, it's very easy to turn off from that. So I remember one time I was at a um, meeting and this woman walked up to me and she said, um, hello, Senator, how are you today? And I said, I'm, I'm great. And she goes, you know, I like, I like most of what you're doing, but I can never vote for you. And I said, really, have you totally made up your mind with that? I said, do you want to talk about it? Because, I mean, she walked up to me to say this. So I said, do you want to, do you want to talk about this? Do I have an opportunity to change your mind about this? What? And she said, well, I just can't, I can't vote for you because I'm pro-life. And I said, well, I understand. Um, the only thing I can say to you is that uh, I am too. Every time I had a child, I did everything I possibly could to make sure that that child's life would be as strong and as protected and as amazing as I could make it as their mother. So from the time each one of my children was born, I had proven my dedication to life, theirs and mine. So I understand if you can't vote for me on that one issue, but I do want you to you know, think about whether your kids have an easy time getting into college whether or not there'll be a, a social service safety net for anybody in your family if you ever needed it, whether or not it matters to you if some kid you don't know is having a hard time reading in school because there are no wraparound services, there are no extracurriculars, there's, not, there's nothing for that kid to do to make them be the best that they can possibly be. Those things are all things that happen once the baby's born. So if you can't vote for me, on that one issue, then I respect that. But I need you to also at least try to respect that I'm doing a whole lot of work once they get here. Right. And she looked right. at me, she took both my hands. She took both my hands and I and I, you know, she she said, I you know, I hear what you're saying and I, you know, and on all I agree with all of those things, but I just can't get past that one thing. And I said, Well, you know, my opposite feeling is that um if my daughter was ever in a situation where she needed to make a choice like that, I would rather have the phone call come from a licensed, medically regulated facility than some back alley that she paid $500 to make the problem go away. I said, that, that's me, you know, as a mom. That's not me as a senator. That's me as a woman and as a mom. That's how I feel about my daughter. So, and I said, also, if it comes from a faith perspective, you know, I try to make people know as conservative as they are, that they're not the only, they don't have the lock on faith, that I don't see my faith because I'm a Democrat, is that I believe that God gives us grace and God gives us forgiveness. But in that scenario I just mentioned, you know, I don't believe that she should have to die for a choice like that. The only way you're in line to get the grace and redemption that God promises all of us is if you are alive to do it. Amen. So I don't understand anybody who wouldn't want safe, medically responsible, sound places for women to take control of their own bodies and their lives. Those are hard conversations to have with people for, for whose minds you'll never change. I will ne she will never change my mind. I will never change her, her mind. So the only thing I can do is meet each person where they're at, hear what they're saying, and try to make a connection on some level and recognize that for some, I, I won't. And that's okay, too. Wow. Wow. That's incredible.
you know, you're a little bit more patient than I am. <laughs> I, just, I just find it uh, utterly insulting, some of the things that is said about our president. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those situations where I have a hard time when you present a person with facts and they want to believe the lies. Our economy has been turned, has, has turned around. We were losing 800,000 jobs a month. Now we're adding, on average, over 300,000 jobs per month. You know, and another thing that's very close to my heart, I am a disabled veteran, and I know you do a lot of work for veterans in the state of Chicago, or excuse me, in the state of Illinois, as well as, you know, so talk to me, as well as all the other great works that you do, but talk to me about some of the things that you do for the veterans. You know, um, the, the most important thing for me, I, I what this is what offends me about what people um, when people talk about you know our veterans, especially the other party, because one they act like they're the only ones that can show a flag and they're the only ones oh who are faithful and they're the only ones who care about our troops, but they don't do anything to make sure that the services that we need when they come home are where they where they ought be. I've never understood. I never could understand how people wouldn't see that you know actions speak louder than words. Like if you say you support. No then how the hell are you how how are how are you okay with this so the first thing i um talk about are the wounds you don't see the you know someone that looks like you know they they came home right I'm right sorry. the ptsd that's okay oh, no right. I, this is when I'm, they come home and they appear fine you have no idea what they've been through and so, in the African American community, we have so many issues that PTSD leads to. So if you come home and it's already hard to find a job, it's already hard to find some place to live, it's hard to make the, transi the transition from um, the skill sets that were learned in the military so you can get hired at home. So that's why I love those, you know, like hire a vet. <laughs> I love because the, the skill sets are so incredible and we need to put them to use here. But I don't like that we don't see the diverse, the diversity of who our troops really are. Talk so if the PTSD leads to things like alcoholism or drug abuse and homelessness, I don't I don't care how long you stand up and clutch your flag plan when we have so much so many veterans homeless i just i don't that 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 rings hollow to me that really rings hollow to me i chair the senate no revenue committee in uh, the state of illinois and that is where all things tax codes happen so i've worked on and passed legislation for tax credits when you hire veterans i've worked on uh legislation to expand our 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 own veterans um facilities you know, like when you walk in, I remember I used to go in <laughs> to the uh, veterans facilities and they didn't, they used to let anybody work the bingo table. <laughs> Are they serious about the bingo table? Nobody worked the bingo table. And I was like, well, I'm about to learn how to work this bingo table. And then it got to the point where it was like, people, would, they would call and be like, well, when's she coming back to work the bingo table? <laughs> Because, the one, you have to call the number slowly. Do not mess up the rows. Do not mess up the rows. <laughs> and, be, and be in a place where um, these folks are, are, are living out their last days when they've given everything to us. So my, my, and I get emotional about it. I have a dear, dear friend right now who's in Germany. He's Naval Intelligence. And 
I remember discussing with him. We would have all kinds of policy debates and things like that over email the first time he was deployed. And, you know, it was hard for me when there were so many elements of why we were fighting that I didn't agree with. But I loved him. And he helped me to see that, that you know, he was our country, not who that individual president was. I got you. When he comes home and shares personal experiences about people who didn't come home with him. So my sister has a husband who is in a hot spot right now. We're not allowed to know where he is. And he's already lost. Six wow. So we when he comes home, it's gonna be different. And we will have to surround him with everything we have to make sure that he has what he needs when this is over. No doubt. As a young you know, black man, for when he walks down that street, they're not asking he's a veteran, he's a young black man first. So my right. heart is with everyone who wears a uniform wherever they are but I'm particularly keyed into what happens to our African American veterans both men and women and, and let me speak for a minute about women for whom people don't assume that they served like if you're not for, for a, a female for a female veteran it's really difficult to come in because the assumption is not that you served or not that you were deployed or that you didn't see battle and um those issues are profound and worthy of every single bit of care and attention. No doubt. No doubt. And you know, these, these things are very important to me because when we had a Republican in office, I went through going to the Veteran Affairs, trying to uh, get retraining and things of that nature. And one of the biggest programs that uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs utilizes for that is uh, what's called Chapter 31 and Chapter 33 for service-connected disabilities. And under you know President Bush 2.0, that program was basically gutted. And when President Obama came into office, that program was enhanced. So it enabled me to go back to school, finish my degree, and eventually get a job within the federal government. And just to keep going on that, again, under President Bush 2.0, there was the, you know, he touted from the pulpit, you know what I mean, from the bully pulpit, the fact that he was doing all these things in the federal government in order to enable veterans to get hired. Well, here was a disabled veteran rated over 40% in my cell, and I'm interviewing, interviewing, interviewing from 2005 all the way through, and I'm making it to the selection official. I'm, I am that top candidate. I should float to the top. I get extra points and things of that nature, and I still can't get hired under President Bush. Under President Obama, you know, he made it actually enforceable and illegal for you to then turn me down for a position. And lo and behold, two years after he's in office, I get a phone call from a federal government agency, and here I am. I'm now almost five years into the federal government. So I see the differences in the way Republicans, when they're in office in the highest land, 
you know, in the highest position of, of the land versus when a Democrat is in that position. You know, there are people who want to behave as though there's some myth of a false equivalency. There are very serious differences about where Democrats put their their emphasis and their action and their their um, their activity on veterans' issues than where Republicans do. I see a lot of um, again that that false clutching of the of the flag pin and, and, and claiming that they're the only ones that are patriotic. That. That whole thing rings really, really hollow in situations like what you just described. Really hollow. I mean, it, it is, um, you can definitely tell that right. there is a difference. Right. And when people act like it's the same across the board, I'm like, no, it's not. No, it is not. Even the emphasis Michelle Obama, when she first came in, put on military families. That's another thing, military families. Like, all the wraparound supports things that we need for families while their loved ones are deployed and then when they come back because the person that comes back is not the same one who left. Amen. And the fact that Amen. We, and the, we don't talk about that and those we don't deal with it, you know, the issues that that naturally presents for those children. Like if you really do support the troops, then you have to support the troops and everybody who right. loves them and their 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 unit, their original unit, is that family that they left behind while they went over there to go fight. No doubt. You know, and you brought up a very good point about female veterans. I have a, a friend of mine. Uh, she's a female Marine. She's no longer in, and her name is Denise McCord. And she is having a hard time because she wasn't in the infantry with the VA yeah. with PTSD. And people don't understand Women suffer a different type of PTSD. There's that separation yep. anxiety from being away from their family. There are so many, they're different than men, so therefore the PTSD is going to look different. It doesn't oh, mean she doesn't have it. Exactly. It doesn't mean exactly. she's not suffering. But in the eyes of the VA, if you didn't see combat, if you weren't in a hostile situation, then you don't suffer from PTSD. And there are so many different forms of PTSD, and there are so many different onsets for PTSD that you can't just say it's 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 not like the common cold here take some NyQuil and go to sleep and you'll be okay it's not like that at all and I really wish and hope that whoever comes into office and I'm really hoping that is Hillary uh, can really expand upon what the VA is allowed to do and I really hope that they get away from you know the 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 pharmaceutical treatment you end up with um, more prescriptions to deal with the side effects of the prescriptions that they gave you in the first place. So I'm very proud to say that it's added PTSD to our list of um, um, acceptable medical marijuana conditions. It's a long time. It took us a long time to fight for that. Uh, we have a, a two twice-deployed veteran graduate of West Point, who's also a state senator. We finished law school together. His name is Michael Hastings, and he led that fight. Uh, and so in Illinois, we finally added that, and it was precisely for that reason. The other thing I wanted to bring up for women in PTSD is we cannot turn a blind eye to sexual assault in the military. Oh, my God. And we cannot turn a blind eye to that. And I am definitely one that believes that the uh, prosecution of sexual assault in the military must come out of the chain of command because they're not helping. So, you are and, that, and that is evident all the way through the VA system as well. Because if you, I mean, not being in a hostile situation is laughable if you were raped by someone you serve with or, or a commanding officer. So, this is, I mean, 
I, I, that's what I mean when I say if you you support the truth, then show it. Do it. No doubt. No doubt. It's way louder than words. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. And you know, I don't, I don't, I don't use this guy's name. I call him the political terrorist who is on the Republican side, who's leading that Republican ticket, because since I am a marketing person, and I know he's a marketing person, so I call him hashtag the political terrorist, a.k.a. punk Trump, just simply because I don't think he stands for anything other than himself. And I know you got to go, Senator, but I have one more question, because we are a music-centric show. So (laughs) if you could could take your senatorial hat off for a second, who is your favorite hip-hop artist of all time? My favorite hip-hop artist of all time. You know what? Let me tell you. I When I jumped up off my bed, I was flipping channels, and I landed on VH1's celebration, that ladies of hip-hop thing, and I saw, right. <laughs> I saw all these girls out there in those old-school Queen Latifah hats. <laughs> and I, I'm telling you. I said, all, I mean, like, my kids came in the room and it was like, they looked at me like I was absolutely crazy as I was like, you and I, T.Y., <laughs> you and I, T.Y., I said, like, like, I mean, like, literally, it took me back to when um, hip-hop was uplifting and it just made you, it filled your soul. <laughs> like we talked about the right. things that we were saying, but it filled your soul. Like I grew up in the uh, late 80s and and really, you know, when I was here in the 90s. And um, I'm, I'm missing the fact that we just don't, We I want to see the girl groups come back. I want to see the lady MCs come back. I want I want right. to see the likes of MC Light and Queen Latifah come back. You know, like I'm happy with my Neo Soul. I love me some Jill Scott and some Erica Badu. And I mean, I just, I, you, I, as you can tell, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling my girl power right now. <laughs> but um, it's all good. Of all time, I have to, I, all time, I have to say someone who I feel like I grew up with and who went from hip hop and then, and then bust out. You know, now that we're in our 40s with a jazz standard, I got to give it to the queen. <laughs> I got to give it to the queen. And she started a production company, and she brought up other artists after her. That flavor unit was no joke. <laughs> No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. The senator knows her hip hop, Scott. No doubt. So uh, <laughs> the senator knows her hip hop. So uh, senator, <laughs> is is there anyone you'd like to say hi to? Your family, anybody? Because I know from from your Facebook page, uh, your your daughter, she's an accomplished dancer. She's about to take on some and, and do some really tremendous things. Anybody that you want to give a shout out to before we close this out? have all my all my three babies i call them my baby adults so this is pj cameron and ryan i told you they're 16 18 and 20 now and i my 20 year old i don't know how my son is 20 if i'm still 30. i don't know how that happens <laughs> but the, but uh my husband paul this is how we get down i hear the hustle and the bustle in the background i know you got to get your day going but i really appreciate you being on scott i just want to say right. thank you i just want to you know really say thank you you did a lot more for us than you could possibly imagine you actually connected the dots for us we have you know a couple of different projects going on but the politicking along with our you know light podcast you connected them in in a very monumental way so i just want to say thank you so much you know we we appreciate you more than you could possibly know oh thank you i was really happy to do this and so very i'm just feeling all kinds of just love for y'all right now so be blessed and be safe and um can't wait to talk to you again call me anytime i hit the bottoms there ain't nowhere else to go but up 
bad days at work if you an attitude and you were rough. Right. And take it out on me, but that's about enough. You put your hands on me again, I put your ass in handcuffs. I guess I felt so deep in love, I grew dependency. I was too blind to see just how it was affecting me. All that I knew is you was all the man I had. And I was scared to let you go, even though you treated me bad. But I don't want to see my kids see me getting beat. Damn, my daddy smacking mommy all around. You say I'm nothing without you, but I'm nothing with you. Uh, a man's don't really love you if he hits you. Yeah. This is my notice of the tool. I'm not taking it no more. I'm not your personal whore. That's not what I'm here for. Ain't nothing good gon' come to you. Do you do right by me? Brother, you wait and sit in the bitch. You and I Now that you saw a veggie video, I saw your wild 